Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, we read through the book of Concord, our Lutheran confession of faith, with our cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians. Today, we have a guest. Plus one. Concordian. A guest Concordian. <laughs> which Doctor. is much better than an accordion, for the record. Yeah, we don't do guest accordions. No. We... Can I introduce him? Yes, please. All right. Dr. Kevin Armbrust, who is the director of editorial something or other for the Lutheran Church, Missouri <laughs> Senate. About right. Editorials exactly right. for just the editorial. Lutheran Church, Missouri. Ed- editorial. That's it. Just, just that's it. That's it. Okay, and uh, he's also the interim managing editor of the Lutheran Witness. He's got a lot going on. He's a very, very busy guy, so we're very honored uh, that you would join us here today. And then we also have our usual layman, Peter Slayton, uh, who is the social media manager for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I thought I was I think, the unusual layman, Slayton. I think these guys kind of work together. Yeah, um, we hang out I'm a lot. Putting, putting these things together here, <laughs> like maybe have tiny cubicles here together. Uh, then we also have Pastor Peter Ill, who Mine's is really pastor kettle. of Trinity in Milstadt, Illinois. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel and St. Paul's in Southern Illinois. And today on our show, we are going to continue making our way through the power and primacy of the Pope I as win. found in the book of concord you weird primacy people using i've clearly won this one I... <laughs> there's a question of pronunciation and peter slayton thinks that he and i are in opposition on this front probably because we are he says it's the treatise on the power and primacy of the pope but everybody knows that the correct answer is it's the treatise on the power and primacy of the pope regardless it is the treatise it i'm has not something under to do a with queen that i need to say primacy of prime importance on this show is that we are making our way through the book of Concord and that uh, the the document that we have come to, as we've discussed previously, I think we even discussed this last week, um, uh, some is that, you know, though probably one of the least regarded documents, when it becomes a thing, it's a thing, uh, as as as. Pastor Ill might say, uh, especially uh, in our in our segments, Lutheran confessions in the news, when it when it comes up as a matter of you know how do we regard the office of the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, because we know that the Roman Catholic Church uh, still this day just by sheer numbers uh, has a great influence in the world, and so especially when it's connected with political issues and so forth, it can kind of put us Lutherans into hot water potentially, and so uh, we need to rightly understand what is it that we actually say is. Lutherans about that office of the power and the primacy of that pope, right? And and specifically, as we also see it come up 
as as we've discussed in other denominations, even within our own denomination at times, uh, kind of a confusion of what is the office. The office of holy ministry is a good starting place, and we we've talked about that. We talked last week about uh, the the testimony of Scripture about uh, you know how how there is not lordship one over the other within the office of holy ministry. Right, uh, it is equal. Right, different in terms of vocation, uh, especially by human arrangement. And we talked some about that last week. Uh, so go ahead and check that out. But as we continue to build then upon this logical argument uh, that Melanchthon, the author of this document, The Power and Primacy of the Pope, uh, is, is using, today we're going to get into the testimony of history. All right. So, so how does history come in to bear on this discussion? And so we'll be taking a look at that here. And to begin us with this, I'm going to uh, begin with our editor's notes. I, I really like how each section here, uh, as we go through this, uh, is interspersed with an editor's note, which kind of does a good job of summary, which I don't always do on this show especially at the end. So I'm going to begin with the good summary, uh, and, and then that'll help you make sense of where we're going when we read through it and discuss does, it. Does the summary have any Bible passages? Because I liked reading Bible passages last week. That, that was I'm, good. I'm I, not seeing many this no. time. I'm going to be very sad. Um, well, well, we're talking <laughs> we, about we, the testimony of history. It will be okay. And it's built upon okay. the foundation of the testimony of Scripture itself. No, so, no hugs. I don't right. need a hug. I'm sad, but I don't need let, a hug. Let, let's, let's get back here, serious, for a moment. All right. Uh, and then I want Dr. Kevin to, to speak uh, because you guys just keep derailing us. <laughs> Note it's, it's from true. the editor. History also shows that the claims of the Roman bishop lack foundation in the church's practice through the ages. In the 4th century, it was understood that the bishop of Alexandria would administer the churches in the east and the Roman bishop would serve the same function in the west. The Roman bishop's position, derived from human decisions made at a council for the sake of the order and sake of order in the church, not out of some special institution by Christ. Bishops were historically chosen by their own congregations, not by the Roman bishop. There were and continue to be many churches throughout the world that do not depend on Roman authority to exist. Many of the church's historic councils were held without the Roman bishops presiding over them. Various church fathers are cited as speaking of equality among the bishops. Even Gregory the Great, who Rome says is a pope, rejected the title of universal bishop and rejected notions primacy. All right, so we're very much talking about the historical examples of exactly what we saw uh, in the testimony of Scripture last week, that there's a quality in the office here, right? Uh, and, and I think one of the key daggers that, that hit for us last week was, was Galatians 2, 7 through 10, where, where St. Paul's authority is recognized as being that from the word alone. Uh, and and you know, didn't he didn't need Peter to specifically commission him or anything, right? But we're going to see this play out in then the early church history as well, and the church fathers talking about this as well. All right, so uh, any, any comments there as, as we jump into this, uh, Dr. Kevin? Well, I think, you know, this is really an important observation that Melanchthon is drawing us to, is that the way the early church lived out the scriptural testimony about the office— does not lend itself to the interpretation that there is one universal pope over the entire church. And that's what Melanchthon is simply going to show us, is that they didn't enact it that way. And and they seem to have absolutely no problem living without one pope. So it wasn't like every church in the world said, we can't ordain anybody until the pope from Rome helps us out here. 
what Melanchthon is going to point to is the fact that the early church simply had bishops based on human institution according to the geography needed for the bishop. And that's really a major argument for this, is that the early church simply did not read the words of the New Testament and then go from that to the need for a universal pope. Universal pope. Which stands rather against then what what uh, is being claimed by Rome is that exactly. from the beginning it was this way, exactly. and, and Scripture doesn't support that. And then, as as you're laying out, Melanchthon's going to show up. Even your own history doesn't support that. Yeah, yep. that's an excellent excellent point. All right, so let's go ahead and re- get into then what Melanchthon actually says on this. So again, we are using the Concordia Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from CPH, and. Uh, Uh, We are picking up with paragraph 12 in the power and primacy of the Pope. The Council of Nicaea resolved that the Bishop of Alexandria should administer the churches in the East and the Roman Bishop the suburban churches, that is, those in the Roman provinces in the West. From this start by a human law, i.e. the resolution of the Council, the authority of the Roman Bishop first arose. If the Roman Bishop already had the superiority by divine law, It would not have been lawful for the council to take away any right from him and transfer it to the Bishop of Alexandria. No, all the bishops of the East should always have sought ordination and confirmation from the Bishop of Rome. All right, so let's just talk about that point. So a lot of history laid out there for us. Uh, What's going on here? What's what's this East-West? I, you know, clarify this for us. The early church, or the church in the days of the Council of Nicaea, around 325 A.D., had seven main churches, or seven church regions, that they recognized. Rome was the furthest to the west, uh, Alexandria in Egypt, and Constantinople uh, in Turkey were some of the farthest to the east. And what it was, what it says in the edicts of the Council of Nicaea is that all of the Eastern ordinations would be overseen by the bishop in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. The Western ones would be overseen from Rome. Uh, But if this has already been the case, that the Roman bishop was overseeing all of these, then they couldn't have taken it away from him. Instead, the uh, Melanchthon here is making the argument this wasn't always the case that the Roman bishop was overseeing all of the ordinations into the pastoral ministry in the church. That's why it got streamlined this way, where a different bishop was asked to oversee the ordinations in the East. Not everybody was going through Rome to become a pastor. Seems straightforward to me. (laughs) (laughs) That it is indeed. Uh, Yeah, so, so what did you did you lay out the beginning that in connection with this was kind of division in the church itself did did I gloss over that point I don't know Ooh no I don't that, think that, we that we have a division that a whole lot. we have a division between east and west within the church because of division within the church itself it, No wait I didn't get into that before You didn't so, get into So it. okay is Malang, are you saying that this division was a result of already doctrinal division that had occurred or are we saying that this division eventually led to further doctrinal division just because you have different ordinations going on yes oh boy yeah uh, so it started with a division in the theological schools of of kind of east and west of alexandria 
and and Constantinople as well. Uh, they were part of the same camp, and then there was the the Roman camp, and they were at odds. Uh, there's lots and lots of church history here, um, but there were some some problematic teachings and some heresies that were rising out of the Eastern Church, and and Rome wanted to respond to them, and so they distanced themselves from the Eastern Church. And so there was already a little bit of a distinction by 325 at the Council of Nicaea. After the Council of Nicaea, that continued to build and to build and to build until the, the Roman bishop or pope and the patriarch of Constantinople uh, actually excommunicated each other and then in the year uh, 1066, they had a, I'm sorry, 1056, they had a, a schism or a split. 56 or 54? Sorry, 1054, 1066 was the Battle of Hastings, and I knew that was wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 1054, thank you. I don't know why, but that number sticks in my head for some reason. It's like, oh, that's that one. Right, and I wanted to back us up for that uh, just just because I, I was assuming it, and so that's why I clarified if you had talked about that because, you know, I, I kind of know it from my own sitting in seminary classes kind of things and everything. But I think it pertains to what we're talking about here for the listener in this sense that, uh, you know, that it plays in with, well, if that's taken away, right, you know, well, they excommunicate each other. Well, well how, how do we have any idea what authority, who has authority, what's going on here? Uh, I think we talked last week. I think you brought in the history of our own Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Layman mm-hmm. Slayton, right? You know, this was an issue for us. Well, if you left your calls in Germany and things like who has authority, where is the authority and everything? And, and it's all to simply make the point that we continue to make on the show. The authority is derived from the word itself, right? And, and the history bears that out, uh, specifically in the sense that that's the way that they're operating there. Yeah, and that's that's really the important thing in the in the whole Council of Nicaea is is that all of these church controversies, whether it's it's Christology, which is actually the main point of the council, or it's how the church governs itself, it's the council runs back to scripture and really says what what do what do the scriptures teach us? What does the New Testament teach us? What do the apostles say about this? What do the evangelists teach us in the gospels? And that's really, you know, what we're working to do in the Book of Concord is also to look, run back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture teach us, teach us? And then what did the early church do with those Scriptures? How did they interpret them? And we don't want to be novel in our approach. We want to be in line with that, right? We want to be running in that exact same line, going back to Scripture, looking how the early church talked about this and how they practiced it, and then see what's, what's the correct way to live in that in that stream of the church, the history of the church and the interpretation of scripture, but always going back to the scriptures themselves and saying, what do those words teach us? So in essence, that becomes our guidance then, right? It becomes our norm, you know, mm-hmm. for, for how we live together, even when we have by a human arrangement things, right. uh, you know, that, that come into play and so forth. But, but the scripture guides us in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's push forward then. Picking up with paragraph 13, and I, and I forgot to, to highlight here, it's, it's difficult to do when you're, you're reading through here, but there are also uh, Roman numerals put in here. Uh, and, and, I, and I did want to point out this, that 
in the the section on the testimony of Scripture, which we covered last week, um, we had the different points there, the different Scripture passages. And I didn't read those Roman numerals last week, um, but uh, basically they're, they're laying out the the logical argument once again. You know, they're 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 building this upon itself, and and the Roman numerals continue on into this uh, testimony of history here. And so uh, with each Scripture passage, we had Roman numeral one, two, three. Four, five. So there's our five primary points of you know that that there's equality within the office, that there's not lordship one over the other, uh, and and that's where Scripture cites it. And then we continue on, and what I just read in paragraph twelve, and what we just discussed is point number six. And so now we're on to point number seven here, picking up with paragraph thirteen. The Council of Nicaea also determined that bishops should be elected by their own churches in the presence of one or more neighboring bishops. This was observed also in the West in the Latin churches, as Cyprian and Augustine testify. For Cyprian says in his fourth letter to Cornelius, So as for the divine observance and apostolic practice, you must carefully keep and practice what is also observed among us and in almost all the provinces. To celebrate ordination properly, Whatever bishops of the same province live nearby should nearby should come together with the people for whom a pastor is being appointed. The bishop should be chosen in the presence of the people who most fully know the life of each candidate. We have seen this done among us at the ordination of our college Sabinius. Colleague, sorry, whoa, bad reading. <laughs> ordination of our colleague Sabinius. By the vote of the entire brotherhood and by the judgment of the bishops who had assembled in their presence, the bishop's office was conferred and hands were laid on him. Thus far, Cyprian. And then continuing on with the um, uh, power and primacy of the Pope here, Cyprian calls this custom a divine tradition and an apostolic observance. He he affirms that it it is observed in almost all the provinces. In the greater part of the world... In the Latin and Greek churches, neither ordination nor confirmation was sought from a bishop of Rome. Therefore, it is clear enough that the churches did not send, did not then grant superiority and domination to the bishop of Rome. Such superiority is impossible. It is just not possible for one bishop to be the overseer of the churches of the whole world. Churches in the most distant lands cannot seek ordination from only one person. It is clear that Christ's kingdom is scattered throughout the whole world. Today, there are many churches in the East that do not seek ordination or confirmation from the Roman bishop. Since the superiority of the Pope claims for himself is the superiority, sorry, since the superiority the Pope claims for himself is impossible and has not acknowledged by and has not been acknowledged by churches in the greater part of the world, it is clear enough that it was not instituted by Christ and does not spring from divine law. I am sorry. I will try to improve my reading skills. It is dark over here and I'm trying to get it. All right. But uh, so Cyprian makes this point here, you know, calls this custom a divine tradition and an apostolic observance. He he, he talks about this and and, and they're making the point overarching all of it here is that, uh, you know, they they didn't seek it, right? Um, They didn't seek this uh, uh, ordination from one hope and so forth. But what's he talking about here? Uh, Dr. Kevin, I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, a, a divine tradition and an apostolic observance. What, what's that going on there? So what, what he's getting at is he's, he's saying that this, this custom of electing bishops basically locally 
is exactly what we were taught in the New Testament. And if you think about it, you know, even look at the first missionary journey of Paul, like in Acts 14, when it records him going from place to place, it says he appointed their bishops or elders, right? And that's the same, if you want to say pastor, that'd be the way we would talk about it. But what we learn from the writings of Paul is that Paul did this. He locally appointed pastors, and then he left the command for Titus to do the same. And and we see this as a pattern in the New Testament scriptures that pastors were appointed locally to serve the people there. And what Melanchthon is getting at here is that we didn't wait for one person to do this for the entire church, but but bishops would gather geographically where they were able to do this for the local churches. And the reason this is important is this means that they did not see the authority to ordain or appoint pastors as located in one human being, but that it was something the church does as a as a body. So what's the benefit of that then being done locally? And one of the things that's brought out by Cyprian is that the, this allows bishops who know the people they're appointing and the congregations to which these people are being appointed to appoint the best man for that, that congregation. And this is really important. Um, as, you, as you appoint people to be shepherds for God's people, it, it is a very, in some ways, analytical approach appointment. This person needs to have a certain amount of knowledge and ability, but it's also important that this person is going to take care of these people. They're going to shepherd the sheep. They're going to do soul care. They're going to, you know, preach the word into these people's lives. And so, um, as you, as you look at the history of the church, they took this very seriously. They appointed people for certain congregations at certain times. And this was done as Cyprian is is bringing out in a geographically feasible way. I, I think Melanchthon also has an interesting approach here that in principle, I want to make sure we don't apply it in the wrong way. So one of the things that he does here in this um, paragraph 16 is he basically talks about how, look, it would be impossible for this to actually be implemented, for the superiority of the Pope to actually be implemented. And in this case, because we are talking about a human tradition, um, about something man-made, uh, at, at least as far as we claim, that's not the claim of the Pope, of course, you can make an argument that, look, because it's impossible, we can therefore reject it because this is a man-made human tradition. What we need to be very careful, though, is that we don't take that same principle, that same logic that, well, if it's impossible, it can't be true, and apply that to things that Scripture itself actually says. Um, you know, like the Lord's Supper and the two natures in Christ and things like that, where it's like, well, that's impossible, so that can't be true. That doesn't make any sense. I just thought that was interesting that Melanchthon is using that rhetorical device here, and I could very easily see how he'd say, oh, I'm going to take that same principle and apply it backwards to the last section about biblical texts that talk about this. No, no, he's very intentionally using that under the human traditions and history part of the text, not here's what scripture says. Well, is it too simplistic then to break it down this way? So what he's saying is a divine tradition and an apostolic uh, observance, right? You know, so, so the the fact that we need pastors for the church that 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 is divinely given to us. Scripture oh, yeah. is clear on that, yep. right? And we're not debating that point. Yeah. Um. And 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 
you know, your connection there with the Lord's Supper and so forth, you know, where God's word is clear on these matters, we, we, we take that as what it is. Right? Even if it sounds impossible and we don't know how it works. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so we're, we're not debating what the Lord has given to the church, right, mm-hmm. as being possible or impossible and so forth. What, what we're breaking it down to then is that, is that uh, ap, you know, apostolic observance, that human tradition um, that, that, that we have ordered ourselves in this way, you know, what, what we're essentially saying is what we've agreed upon as human beings and, and how we're going to function because it's not divinely given to us has, has become an impossibility, right? You're trying to do something that just can't humanly be done. And it's, it's a human organization. Or, or you're claiming that you did something that can't humanly be done. You're, you're claiming that this was the case. Okay, well, that's, maybe that's, that's better. That's clearly yeah. impossible. Yeah. That can't have been the case. Humans can't do that. That just simply doesn't work that way. Um, and my point is you don't apply that logic to Scripture. Don't, don't do that with what God says. Right. Cause, cause <laughs> you're going to get in trouble then. <laughs> right, which is, which, which is in this sense, right, it, it's, it's trying to go back, right, yeah. and, and, and say, well, see, it does come from divine you know, institution, which has been the Roman Catholic point. Right. Right. And so that's why they're trying to make it fit into this mold. Uh, and he's using this rhetorical device to show the, the, uh, the fallacy of that. Sure. Right. All right. This exchange or that is recorded by Cyprian, uh, also includes some really important, uh, context that as pastors and bishops are installed by the church, they aren't simply raised up and and installed by their local congregation, but they also have the support of the other local bishops and other area pastors. Uh, This is a tradition that we retain today, and with good reason. The church is not just hearers. The church is not just preachers. The church is preachers and hearers together. And so there's almost this kind of bicameral feel to pastors saying, yes, we as as other area pastors support your ministry here in this place. And we also recognize uh, and, and the lay people recognize, oh, yeah, we also support your ministry in this place and both come together and say, yes, here is your place of service, your place to get to serve the church of God. And so you're talking about in terms of like an ordination or an installation of a pastor, even what you can visibly see, right? You have the pastors gathered together, they all put on their robes and things like that. Uh, uh, But it's also the hearers there that that speak some words, right? Uh, Acknowledging that by our human arrangements, we have uh, the, the tradition of the local um, appointment of a pastor being the congregation's right to choose its own pastor, right? I, I'm citing theses by uh, uh, CFW Walther. Walkabouts with Walther. Walkabouts with Walther. Yeah. Our first but, Walther uh, reference uh, today. Yeah, but uh, but back to this uh, human arrangement then. So that that's what we're we're working with here then is, is, is that, um, you know, how do we get them locally? And then we can also then talk about, you know, we have what we call circuit visitors in terms of our human arrangements and then even district presidents or vice presidents and things of that nature, right? Those things are all appointed locally too. Uh, the, the president of the synod doesn't get to say, no, these are the presidents within the districts and so forth. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even get a vote, right? <laughs> uh, th- that's all done locally in our district conventions and in our circuits. Uh, we appoint our circuit visitors and things of that nature right so so it, it adhering to this this local um you know appointment that we see from paul himself urging uh to to the early pastors as well 
All right, we need to take a break there, so uh, go ahead and uh, take a break, but please come right back after this. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. Welcome back to Concord Matters. And today we have our cohort of Christ Confessing Concordians. We have Dr. Kevin Armburst, who is the director of editorial, uh, interim managing editor of the Lutheran Witness, and also layman Peter Slayton, social media manager for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Pastor Peter Ill, pastor of Trinity Milstadt, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith of Emmanuel and St. Paul's in Southern Illinois. And we're continuing to work our way through the power and primacy of the Pope and today's uh, looking at the testimony of history. And so we've seen that it's in support of what we saw last week uh, in the testimony of Scripture, giving us this this uh, directive, this, this guidance, if you will, uh, that uh, uh, w- what is normative for the church is that th- there's equality within the office. Uh, there, there are not appointed lords, certainly not divinely appointed lords over others, uh, some more important than others and so forth. And we have human arrangement uh, that, that does provide some varying levels of authority within the church, uh, but it is not divinely appointed. And so it's not uh, a directive for us in that sense that uh, uh, any and he has special authority over others, right? And so we've seen that play out in history in terms of what we saw at the Council of Nicaea. They affirm what uh, Scripture directed them in, uh, and then also uh, as Cyprian uh, testifies to as well. So let's push on then forward, picking up with paragraph 17, uh, and and this is Roman numeral uh Eight, eight there yeah sorry had, yeah had to, had Three, to sir. think oh, about it for a second uh but so then point eight on this bringing together the testimony of scripture and also the testimony of history as being uh uh congruent with one another uh point eight on this many ancient councils have been proclaimed and held in which the bishop of rome did not preside such as that of nicaea and most others this too testifies that the church did not then acknowledge the primacy of superiority of the Bishop of Rome. Pretty clear on that point, I would say, right? I mean, if you have a church council. The seven ecumenical councils, is that what they're referencing here? The seven ecumenical councils and some of the ones that came after that as well. Although after uh, after the seven ecumenical councils and after 1054, uh, the Roman bishop was, of course, presiding over those but some of the earliest councils the roman bishop didn't preside over and when he didn't preside over them the the point that melanchthon is raising is if you want to say that the roman bishop has always had the superior place if this goes all the way back to saint peter and has continued in a line then you would assume that he was presiding over all of the councils of the church 
since he's not, where is your argument broken? Uh, and he's using a very logical, rational argument to say, what you guys are claiming as true isn't borne out in history. We know for a fact that the Roman bishop didn't preside over Nicaea and some of the other early councils. Therefore, this doesn't go all the way back to Peter. Somewhere, uh, the train got interrupted or the train picked up late. So th this has an interesting thought for me that is possibly derailing. But can we have a synod convention and where the district, or not the district, the, the, the synodical president isn't presiding over us? Is that the irregular convention? Because <laughs> we, we just had our 67th regular convention. Nobody can tell me what an irregular convention would be. There has not Maybe been, that's what it there's is. There's been no irregular uh, the, convention. The opposite oh, of man. regular is special in this case. Oh, man. And there has not been a special convention of synod uh, throughout our history, uh, which is okay with me. Uh, I suppose, because that's probably a bad thing if you need a special yeah, convention. Right. Some some bad stuff's going on if you got to call a special convention within the triennium in which we meet. Right. So, so But, I mean, according to our own constitution, which is a human arrangement, right, uh, the, the synod president must preside over the, the convention. Or then, in that case, one of the vice presidents filling in as the chair. You're, you're a secretary of the Southern Illinois District, so you, you should know this convention uh, and constitution stuff, right? I I do at the district level. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. You caught me away from, it's, away it's, from my it's, synodical it's, bylaws. Yeah, Hold on, let it's me not get a my huge bylaws. Issue. Wait a minute. Right? I'm sure yeah, we can track down John I don't know. John, we'll track John it down Sias. later. Yeah, he's, he's down, the, down the hall here or something. Uh, but, uh, His no, ears no, are burning right now. Yeah, I... I, I not to take us too far afield here either, right? But I, I think that it does help make the point that if we understand that even in terms of how we operate, right, today in our own church body, or I mean, you can think of anything else, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just how groups operate together. And so clearly, if this is a divinely appointed position, Right. If God's word was so clear on this, that Peter or the bishop of Rome is the head of the church. Right. Can you have the church gathering together for a council where he is not sitting and presiding over that council? It, it would just be it would be nonsense. You can't really operate that way. Right? OK, okay I'm, I have a question then, because going off of your analogy, if we're following the same logical thought process with your analogy, couldn't I then say, well, okay, if our Constitution says that the president of Synod, in this case Harrison, must preside over the convention, well, I saw some of those live streaming sessions and he was not presiding over all of them. Therefore, maybe he wasn't the authority the whole time. Aren't we actually undermining our own point here? Using that Go ahead and analogy. take it, Peter. I don't know. I'm again. Getting... I don't want to get too far afield here. Maybe that's part the, of the problem. The basic, here. the basic point that I was making is that he is recognized as the chair, and he delegates that authority to the vice presidents to okay. fill in. Or if he were to fall gravely ill and drop dead on the stage, which thank goodness did not happen. Although we did have some heart condition issues crop up at the last convention in Tampa, mm -hmm. uh, of which we prayed for those folks and and, and pray they are healing. Um, but uh, yeah, so. 
I mean, if that were to happen, then then that's why you have, by human arrangement, the vice presidents, right? Then they fill that office. But all that aside, we're we're not here to teach how we operate as a Senate, by the way. That's a completely different podcast, and I'm sorry I brought it up. That uh, actually, I kind of it hope it's not a podcast. I was just saying, there's a reason that podcast doesn't exist. I'm going to make it. We just proved it. But I think that would be a lot of fun. But, but I, I think the helpful point here is this, right. that in our human arrangement, and for us as people, there is always authority. All authority under heaven and in heaven and on earth is given from the Father to Jesus. And Jesus sends out his apostles and his church into the world with his authority. Cool. So we continue to exercise authority, not because that we know so well what's going on, but because Jesus has given us authority and we use it. Nature abhors a vacuum, they say. And so we don't just say, well, gee golly, there's, there's nobody here to be in charge, so how are we going to do this? Somebody was presiding over those early councils. Somebody was presiding over the later councils. Somebody presides over a synod convention. Somebody presides over churches. There is an institution for the pastoral office, but there is not an institution for the Pope. And there's a Roman Catholic argument that will come up probably next week on just that issue of the installation of Peter as Pope in the Gospel of Matthew. But that didn't seem to be applied in the early church, at the Council of Nicaea and at other places. There were people presiding, and those people weren't the Bishop of Rome. Therefore, Melanchthon says, it, it stands to reason, if it wasn't the Bishop of Rome, this thing that you're claiming, that the Bishop of Rome has always been the authority in the church, isn't historically accurate. But I, I think there's a, a key element to this that we need to make sure we mention, is that we can actually get together as a Missouri Senate and have a convention without any authority at all. The question is, does anybody recognize that as a valid convention? And that's actually the point in this, is that Nicaea gathered, and it stands as an authoritative council. It's not that these of were— Of the church. Of the church. It's not that these are spurious gathering. They're going, yeah, they got together, but that's just a weird club. No, that's the point that Melanchthon is making. It's not just that people got together— it's that people got together, and this is a council we look at as being authoritative for the church. See, so it's not the question of whether or not Missouri Synod Lutherans could get together and have a council or, or some kind of assembly and call it a convention. Of course we could, but nobody would listen to us, right? If I said the four of us changed all the bylaws of Synod, Nobody would care. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who cares? Guys, Jesus which is kind of the point I'm That's making here, right? everything. Yeah. So, so the point is that these councils happened and they bear authority still in the church. That's the key. And not because Peter or the Bishop of Rome or anyone else or any delegate from there, because there's no evidence of that either, was presiding over them that they're authority, but it's derived from the word then again, right? Yeah, that, that's that, that's to, to put a, a really good point on my whole bringing the issue up, and I'm sorry that we got way too deep into <laughs> synod politics, uh, uh, of which I repent of. All right. Uh, the but, boring side of synod politics. <laughs> But, but I think the point's well made here on that brief paragraph of, right, uh, that, that, that clearly uh, the, the authority is there because it, it's derived from the word and it's authoritative for the church and not because of the pope. All right, let's push on then to uh, uh, 
this is Roman numeral nine, paragraph 18, so point nine on their making their argument here. Jerome, one of the church fathers, says, if there is a question about authority, the world is greater than the city. Pardon me, I had something stuck in my throat. Weird way to pause. Let me try that again. If there is a question about authority, the world is greater than the city. Wherever there has been a bishop, whether at Rome or Eugebium or Constantinople or Regium or Alexandria, he has the same dignity and priesthood. Thus far, Jerome. All right, so so what's going on here? What What's Jerome saying for us? Dr. Kevin. Well, I mean, it's kind of what he's saying is that that no city bears the authority of the whole world gathered. So we could have popes kind of wherever, and it doesn't make any difference. You know, there, there isn't a holy city. And and whether we want to really wrestle with this now or not, that's this is actually a major teaching of the Gospels with Jesus claiming to be the temple, the place where God dwells. This actually removes Jerusalem from being the physical location of the church. And when we try to recreate that with Rome or St. Louis or anything else, that's that's not really the point. That The church is no longer located in a geographic location for the universal church. It's now located wherever word and sacrament are proclaimed and people are gathered around that to hear it and receive it, right, from their pastor. And this is actually a major ecclesiological point that he's getting at now is that the, the church is not tied to a holy city, and and therefore neither is the bishop. That, that is something that I really want to deal with at this point, because I think that we definitely wrestle with this broadly within the Christian church uh, here in America, right? You know, that, that we're somehow a special nation, uh, so we, we don't tend to make it so much a city, although tem- temptations in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, bearing the name Missouri and our home office of which we're sitting in, being in St. Louis and so forth. Sometimes we get uh, some jokes that crop up about that as well. Um, but but I, I do want to bring us back to this point. I think it's interesting here that they, the, the issue is about being the bishop at Rome. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of wonder and maybe our listeners are as well. Why is Rome the thing instead of Jerusalem? And and, and I like how you brought in that Jesus, you know, kind of takes that away. You know, his, his body is the temple, right? And so we can certainly talk about that. Um, but but why why is it not the bishop of Jerusalem? Oh, I get to talk. Yay! So uh, <laughs> somebody was talking with me earlier, I think sometime last week about this, that when we see in Acts chapter 15 that James uh, all of a sudden opens his mouth and speaks at the, well, kind of the first council, the one at Jerusalem, he says... And he would have been the bishop of and, Jerusalem and in this case. the bishop right. of Jerusalem. Uh, and he says, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we live as Christ's church this way. Uh, believe the gospel. You don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And don't eat meat uh, that's been strangled or offered to, uh, or offered to idols. Okay. Uh, and and uh, maintain sexual morality. Maintain sexual immorality? No, maintain sexual <laughs> morality. Okay, good. No immoral. I, I spoke okay. too quickly. Oh, Sorry. Good catch. <laughs> but who spoke before him? Paul and Peter. And so if Peter, the bishop of Rome, was going to speak authoritatively, he didn't pull rank. 
over James or over anybody else. He didn't say, I'm Peter, I'm the rock on which the church is built, and so y'all got to do it this way. Paul doesn't say, I'm the missionary to the Gentiles, and I need to do it this way, or y'all need to do it this way. Instead, they get together, and after Peter has spoken, after Paul has spoken, James says, well, if these guys are saying it, they're the pillars. Let's go for it, guys. And he simply gets everybody on the same page, and they continue on. So how does it become Rome, then? Like, was Peter martyred in Rome? Was he a pastor of a church in Rome? According like to tradition, he was martyred in Rome. Okay. Because I, I think that was part of the question, is how did we get Rome into all this mix? Well, and Mark's gospel is basically what Peter preached in Rome. Ah, Mark writes it down, having gotcha. traveled with him and so forth. So, yeah, he was, he was the bishop, the okay. pastor in, in Rome as well, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm still kind of wondering, how, how, do, how does it get centered to Rome? Why, why, why do they make that the issue instead of Jerusalem? I have another quick question. So when Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church in Rome, was he writing to the church that Peter planted? Yes. Cool. I mean, <laughs> but it's kind I, of a, an aside issue in this sense. I know, but right? that's Cause like Paul also cool Bible stuff. Ministered though. there, right? Yeah. Look, I don't get to read a Bible passage yeah. today, so we're going to talk about that for two seconds. Now we're done. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Kevin, you want to you want to bring us back to my point that I've, I've brought up here <laughs> as host trying to get my guests to speak to this issue. Why is Rome an important thing? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of issues with Rome. But remember, Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. That's kind of where this whole thing starts is the the Christian church, if we look at it from the book of Acts perspective, really is the church that begins in the Roman Empire. And this is the capital city. And remember, when Jerusalem was no longer a safe place for Christians to be, they fled largely to Rome. Now, unfortunately, when they got there, there was a persecution against Christians and some bad stuff happened. But this really is is the roots of Rome being the capital city. Um, and, and you even have scriptural books that talk about Rome being the capital. So... This is, this is kind of the, the basic roots of it is, is that simply, historically speaking, the Christian church begins geographically in the Roman Empire, and Rome is, is the center of that at the very beginnings of the church. Right. And so, and this is maybe just me wondering then as well, uh, but I, I do think that this, this will connect back into one of the things that, that we want to highlight again here too, um, is, is that there is this... This is point two that the, the editor's note makes at the beginning of the power and primacy of the Pope, uh, that Melanchthon presents these three major objections. And point two of that is that the Pope claims to possess authority in the realms of both church and state. And so Rome being the political center, the, the state center, right? There, there's a significant move in the history of the church um, to, to be centered around the powers of political authority. So I think that that's going to come back to play here as well, right? Um, but then also, and then this is where I just say, I, I think this is more me wondering and, and, and we'll see how it plays out because I don't know that I have a fine point to make on it now. Um, but uh, uh, I, I wonder then to they have already shifted from Jerusalem, which is clearly central in terms of scripture and in the importance of the early church 
even in the book of Acts, right? Um, but then there has been this shift to Rome, right? Mm-hmm. And so why isn't that dealt with? Why isn't that wrestled with in, in terms of uh, the, the Roman Catholics, you know, kind of building up this structure that just doesn't have a good solid foundation scripturally? Well, remember, they think it does because if Peter is the first pope, and then he goes and ministers in Rome and is in martyred in Rome, then that becomes the city of Peter. And so that's the city of the first Pope. And then when, when the Roman empire declares Christianity to be the legal religion of the Roman empire, it just continues to be focused on Rome and continues to be focused on Rome. And, and this is actually part of the issue of the church is you kind of have these guys that are, Hey, it's all about Rome. You have other people saying it's all about Alexandria. It's all about these other cities. And, how dare you claim this? And, um, but that's kind of the way it, it goes back. And you've got to remember that, that at the root of this discussion of the Pope is always the Apostle Peter. You just can't get away from that, is that in, in everything they do, they're going to default to, well, since Peter was the first Pope, right? And you just kind of can't get away from that. So even with the city of Rome, it really is the city of St. Peter. And that, that's the roots of it. And then obviously it's reinforced as history develops and they kind of say, see, it's happening again in Rome. So this, this obviously is the, is the seat of the church. Which then we do say is a shaky foundation, even though they think that they're, they're working with from scripture. We, we've pointed out on this show many times, right? It, it's a wrong understanding of what Jesus says to Peter upon this rock. It, it's, it's really upon the confession that Peter makes, not Peter himself, right? Yeah. And, and again, it, the book of Acts is so helpful in this because when you read the first, you know, five chapters of the books of Acts, you think maybe Peter is the Pope. I mean, he's 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 speaking for the church. He's on doing, Pentecost. On Pentecost. The birth of the church. And other days. Yeah. He's doing signs and wonders, which is the exact same words that are used to describe what Jesus did. I mean, this guy's amazing. He's raising the dead. He's converting people. He's doing all kinds of amazing things. If you lie to him, you fall over dead. I mean, this is crazy. And you're thinking maybe <laughs> Peter is the Pope. And then as the book of Acts continues, all of a sudden Paul is described in many of the same ways. And you have Peter and Paul now being actually equals in their apostolic charge. And then you Which see, we dealt with last week, right. where that's not even conferred by Peter. Right. right? The not authority all. of the yeah. word gives it. Yeah. And, and Paul even says in Galatians, I didn't get this from Peter. Right. right? It, that was highlighted is, on last week's yeah, show. Yeah, last week. Yeah. So, so then what you have... In the church, as as Pastor Il just brought up, is is the first council. You have Peter and Paul not coming as the Pope or as authorities, but actually saying they're giving testimony to the work of God. And James, now we have a third guy, right? One of the pillars of the church, who makes the the definitive statement for the church that this is our decision. So Peter as Pope in the book of Acts, it you kind of think, well, maybe that is the way it's going, but then it quickly changes. And then we know from Galatians, I know you guys talked about that as well, where Paul is actually able to confront Peter, right? Well, you wouldn't do that if he's the Pope. So the the testimony of the, of the New Testament really lays out very plainly that the words of Matthew 16 that Jesus speaks is not conferring upon Peter an office, but he's actually reinforcing the confession of Peter and saying, this, this that was given to you, not by man, but by my father in heaven. This is what the church is going to be built upon. And so then clearly understood as, as normative for the operations 
of the early church itself, as we see play out here in the testimony of history with all these fathers, Cyprian and Jerome here, right? The ancient councils, the Council of Nicaea, and so on and so forth. Uh, we have another uh, testimony here from history uh, from Pope Gregory. <laughs> uh -oh. Let's bring in a pope. You've got a pope. Yeah. Oh, that that's that's gotta hurt. All right. Uh, but this is paragraph nineteen point ten in the Roman numerals uh, of which they're making here. All right. So Pope Gregory, writing to the patriarch at Alexandria, forbids that he be called universal bishop. Oh, when a pope's like, no, guys. I ain't got it. <laughs> it's kind of a problem, right? Uh, this should be a really damning evidence here. All right. Uh, continuing on with the uh, 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 article here. In the records, he says that in the Council of Chalcedon, the primacy was offered to the Bishop of Rome, but it was not accepted. Ah, oh, this this is just, <laughs> I mean, this, this is like the nail in the coffin. But go ahead and bring it home for us here, uh, Dr. Kevin. I like throwing it to him. He's and, awesome. And Dr. Kevin. Go Layman, right Slayton, Dr. Kevin. That's so great. <laughs> well, I mean, like you said, this is this is kind of your trump card. A pope himself is saying, no, it's not the way it works. And, and as any good pastor would quickly say, no, this isn't me. You know, when you when when you go to church on Sunday, please go to church on Sunday. And your pastor turns on and says, hey, y'all. You're a bunch of sinners. And if you say you're not, you're lying to yourselves and to God. And you say, you're right. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just, and then you confess your sins, right? You say before the church and for the whole world, before God, you say, I'm a sinner. I have not loved God with my whole heart. I have loved neighbors myself. I've sinned in thought, word, and deed. I deserve God's temporal and eternal punishment, right? And then your pastor turns around because you said, but because of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, please forgive me. And your pastor turns around. He doesn't say, because of my authority, as your bishop. He doesn't say that. He says, called and ordained in the stead and by the command of Christ. See, we don't dare claim authority that the scriptures don't give us. And that's exactly what your pastor does when he forgives your sins. You, I don't want my sins forgiven because my pastor is such a cool guy or he's got it all figured out. I want forgiveness from the word of God itself. His name is Jesus. And, and, and that's what Luther says in the small catechism too, right? Is that, is that when your pastor forgives your sins, you trust that it's, the, it's God himself doing it. And that's what, that's what this is all getting to, is that a true servant of the word does not point to himself and take authority that isn't given, right? But always says, no, 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 don't give me what God hasn't given to me. Made by Pope Gregory himself, right. showing himself to be a true servant <laughs> of the word. That's right. and, and and that was very well said. And I'm sure that the, the other Peters here, not the popes, um, but uh, the other Peters here would like to chime in as well. But we, we got to push forward because we only have about 30 seconds left. Uh, we can finish this. Uh, Let's go. Yes. All right. In the testimony history, point 11, paragraph 20 and 21 here. Last, how can the pope be over the entire church by divine right when the church elects him? And what are the custom that gradually prevailed of bishops of Rome being conferred, confirmed by the emperors? When for a long time there had been conflicts over the primacy between the bishops of Rome and Constantinople, the emperor Phocas finally determined that the primacy should be assigned to the bishop of Rome. But if the ancient church had acknowledged the primacy of the Roman pontiff, this conflict could not have occurred, nor would the emperor have needed to make the decree. Pastor, I'll go ahead and bring us home here. To sum up all these points, 
if the history is the way that the Roman Church was saying it was, says Melanchthon, then there wouldn't be need for all of these things that say we recognize the Pope as being the head bishop. But instead, the head of the church is Jesus Christ, and he is the one from whom comes life, forgiveness, and salvation for you. Well said and so much to say on the matter, so please continue to come back week after week as we make our way through the power and primacy of the Pope. That's the testimony of history following the testimony of Scripture, building our argument. Next, we'll take up the refutation of Roman arguments. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for the next time we convene for Concord, please call 314-996-1542, email KFUO at KFUO.org, or find us on social media at KFUO Radio. Thanks for stopping by today, and until next time, keep confessing, church.